HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Once again, it is Thursday, 1 o'clock, and you have tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are on the line with David Campbell of Maple Land Farms. David, welcome to the show. Hello, how are you? It's great to have you back. I know we had you on, uh, I don't know, maybe last year around this time to uh, give us the update in the maple syrup world. And so we thought, time to have you on again and hear a little bit about this year's season. So I would love to maybe start with a brief recap for our listeners who didn't tune into the last show. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about Maple Land Farms and, and what you guys do and how you got started. We actually started about 40 years ago when our family decided to go into the commercial syrup operation instead of just making syrup for our family's use. And today, my brother and I, Terry, tap about 9,000 taps and make a little over 3,000 gallons of syrup a year. Now, is that a scale of production? I mean, as far as size-wise, does that make you a big producer of syrup for commercial producers in New York State or a small, medium? Where does that put you in the spectrum? We're in the larger category. Probably the average producer in New York has about 1,500 taps and do it as a part-time job. We are full-time sugar makers. Do it every day. (laughs) Sugar year-round. It sounds like a sweet life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that is not the uh, only role you play in the maple syrup world. Is that correct? Well, true. Do you um do you are you still working with uh with the New York State Maple is a Maple Producers Association? I do work with them some. I'm not on the board at the current time, only on as an alternate, but I am now a vice president of the New York State Maple Foundation and also um on the board of the International Maple Producers. Oh wow. So Maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, what those what those organizations do at at the state level, but then also at the international level. What are some of the kind of conversations that you're having? Well, of course, we talk about production, and 
marketing. Um, the Maple Foundation is also based on education besides marketing. We actually help send a group of FFA kids to New York City once or twice a year to visit different boroughs and school kids to help educate them on how syrup is made. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I noticed about maple syrup producers, especially commercial producers, is there is always this really strong uh, education component as part of, I, I think, the the marketing and the sales pitch. I mean, you, that's really not something you see with most agricultural products. Why do you think that's such a big part of the maple syrup story? Um, maple, pure maple syrup is just a small part of the syrup industry. Uh, the flavored corn syrups, of course, are our biggest competitor worldwide. And there's other new sweeteners, agave and things like that coming on the market also. So the the historical or the, the history, the education component, uh, I think, you know, my, my instinct would be like allows you to really talk about what makes your product so different. Right. It shows people that the early Americans learned from the Indians and how to tap the tree and collect the sap. And, of course, it's come a long way since they first hung a bucket or a trough underneath a maple tree these days. Now the trees are all connected with plastic pipelines and a little more high-tech. Yeah, like most things in agriculture. So maybe you can touch on that a little bit. Um, you know, the Heritage Foods USA crew took a, a trip up to Vermont a few weeks ago to Deep Mountain Maple up in West Glover, Vermont. And we were, you know, walking through the sugar bush up there and taking a look at their operation. And a lot of conversation was kind of centered around the decisions to adopt or not a- adopt different kind of technological innovations with regards to maple syrup production. So... You know, I know that most most kind of commercial producers, if not all, I'm assuming, have moved beyond kind of collecting sap in buckets to, um, to, to collecting sap in lines. But then there's a couple of other things, you know, people can choose to uh, put their lines on vacuum. They can use reverse osmosis machines. You can boil your syrup with, uh, you know, gas or some other type of flu as a po- flu- fuel as opposed to wood. So... Maybe uh, if you could take us through some of those decisions and give us a little bit of the pros and cons, maybe starting with the with the vacuum system. The vacuum system helps us get a good sap flow from the tree, depending on no matter what the weather is, basically. With uh, buckets or gravity tubing systems, you deploy, re- rely on the sap the freezing and thawing cycles in the springtime to get the sap to move up and down in the tree and push it out the hole that you have drilled. With a vacuum pump hooked to the tree, you're creating a negative pressure at the tap hole, and it makes it easier for the sap to flow down the lines and into your collection tank. So you don't have to have a freeze and thaw cycle every day, but obviously you get a better sap flow when you do. Yeah, so I wanted to, I mean, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do a show on maple this 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 week is because, you know, we've had such crazy weather this year. And I know when we were up visiting the Cantors, they were talking about how this was 
literally the craziest maple syrup season they've seen since they started um, sugaring about 30 years ago. So I was wondering, how did it go for you in, in New York State? Well, it depended on the area you were in and the technology you were using, of course. And when you tap, uh, we made syrup the earliest ever this year. February 2nd was the first day we made syrup. Usually you don't make, sometimes you make a little bit at the end of February, but not usually much before March comes around. So we were just about a month early starting production and then in a, about a month early ending production also. So producers that didn't get out and tap their trees early, waited till the normal tapping time, ended up with a poor crop, and some producers just didn't get as many freezing and thawing cycles in their area, too. So, so how many days did, did you guys end up getting uh, sap? I think we actually made syrup on about 27 different days. Wow. That's... Starting February 2nd and then ended roughly 20th of March. And how does that compare to, um, you know, other seasons in in the past? Is that average or above or below? Just, just about average. I believe we made syrup about 30 different days the last couple of years. So nearly normal. And sap flows, of course, early in the season. We didn't have quite all our trees tapped, and sap flows were shorter days, so... We didn't get big runs right first part of February, but it was running. But it was running and you were collecting. Now, that's interesting because uh, over in Vermont, I think they said that they ended up, you know, just getting sap. I think it was like 12 or, or 13 days. It was like as opposed to the usually they're doing a six six or eight week season up there. And so this, that was right. definitely like everyone was really kind of hustling. I mean, because that's the thing. When the sap is flowing, it's flowing. It's not a spigot you can really turn on or off. No, Mother Nature tells you when it's going to produce the sap for you. So you got to be ready and catch it. So we kind of touched on the the vacuum system, which basically produces a small amount of, of suction to help kind of facilitate sap flow. I mean, there's no harm in... I mean, it's... You're you're not going to be able to like suck all the sap out of a tree, right? No, you never could. Not, not unless you put a lot of holes in the tree and you wanted to kill the tree. But we usually only put one hole per tree and take maybe ten percent of the sap that's in the whole tree. So and it's going to hurt. Is that? I mean, I know you know in in any industry in any type of production there there are people kind of making different choices and there are good producers and I guess you know quote unquote bad producers. Right. I mean, is is that a thing in the maple world? I mean, do you have people like kind of rogue tappers who go around like vampiring the trees or I mean, it, is it just kind of not worth it to kind of take more than than is what what's going to come out at a, at a fairly kind of standard yeah. protocols. Any producer that wants to be in it for any length of time isn't going to overtap their trees because they want them to stay healthy and produce for, for a long time. It takes about 40 years for a tree to get large enough before we even start tapping it, and then they'll live for 150, 200 years easily. Nice. And one of the, I mean, one of the 
things that we also talked about when we were walking through the sugar bush uh, up in Vermont is, a, is, you know, as a maple syrup producer, you know, one of your other big tasks is managing your forest and, and doing some cutting back of trees. And can you talk a little bit about what are some of the decisions you need to make in that regard? I mean, it doesn't sound like, are you doing any planting? I mean, if it, if it takes 40 years for a, a tree to produce any syrup, I mean, is there a culture of replanting or how do you kind of manage the, the sugar bush? For the most part, producers don't replant. We actually did replant a few trees around their sugar house this year in one spot that have been selected from trees that produce sweeter than average sap and were started under a system where they should grow faster because their root um, propagation on the seedlings. So. We're hoping maybe we can tap those in 15 or 20 years instead of 40, but time will tell. But for the most part, we just thin the maple trees that are already in our woodlot to, uh, when they get too crowded, so that encourages them to grow bigger, more branches. And the more leaves the tree has, the more leaves that has to turn that sunlight and water into sugar, which it stores in its roots all winter, and then we collect in the spring. So, what, I mean, what is the, the tree, the sap, what function does the sap play for the tree? I mean, is it like a kind of internal Gatorade mix? or Yeah, yeah basically, it feeds the leaves as they open up in the spring. Interesting. Well, I think we are going to make a move towards a short break, and when we get back, we will kind of continue working our way through some of the different technological innovations of maple sugaring in 2012 so stay tuned and sustainable seafood at Whole Foods Market. On April 22nd, Earth Day 2012, we'll be eliminating all red-rated species of wild-caught fish and seafood from our stores across the country. It's our way of supporting our oceans and helping to reverse trends in overfishing. Learn more at blueoceaninstitute.org and wholefoodsmarket.com. We are back. You have tuned into the Farm Report, and I am your host, Aaron Fairbanks. We are on the line with David Campbell of Maple Land Farms talking about what else? Maple syrup. So one of the things that I think is always striking to me about about maple syrup is how I mean, it's really just kind of crazy. The sap comes right out of the trees. It's collected in these kind of uh, big 
like tubs essentially and um the whole process is 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 uh much less like technical than um it it's, it appears anyway less technical than in my head i mean i'm sure going to visit a corn syrup factory would impart a very different kind of aesthetic than than going up and walking through the sugar bush and kind of seeing the production of maple syrup and i was curious about um any kind of like regulation or consumer protection that happens with regards to how uh, syrup is collected or, or produced? I mean, are there certain uh, rules or tests or um, any kind of things put into place with regards to uh, consumer safety or any concerns that we should have as consumers with regards to maple syrup? It's a very natural product. There's nothing added to it as it's made. The only thing that's done is the extra water is taken out of the sap to concentrate it into syrup. And the syrup, the amount of sugar in the syrup is a very safe way preservative, basically. So Egg and Markets does not do any regular inspections of sugar houses where it's made because of the safety of the product being produced, but they do do spot checks of syrup on the shelf or if somebody has a problem with syrup and lets them know, they'll follow up with the producer and see what's going on. So there's no regular inspection, but Aggie Markets is regulating the industry. Right. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, there's a long history uh, of kind of, you know, safety and and quality that the industry, I think, really is able to fall back on. If, you know, does syrup go bad? Uh, You know, if I opened up, if I opened a bottle, I mean, would I be able to tell if it had, you know, turned? Is that something that happens to it or? Not very often. Once in a while, it might get a little mold on the top of the syrup if it wasn't sealed properly when it was packaged or if it wasn't of a heavy enough density sugar content like it could start to ferment a little bit but basically other than that it's not going to go bad nice um so could i like i mean i know that in certain tombs you know they open up and find mummies with like a a crock of honey i mean could i get buried with a crock of maple syrup and have it there for you know people who dig me up a thousand years from now well it could if it was stored properly it would keep almost forever glass containers why it i'll keep it plastic is porous enough that it would let a little air in over time, but it would still keep a very long time. Well, something to think about as I plan my journey into the next life. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's get back to uh, technological innovation. So I think the next tool that I'm familiar with in the, in, the, in the syrup story is the reverse osmosis machine. So can you tell us a little bit about that process? Right. The uh, sap comes out of the tree, usually at the beginning of the season, a little over 2% sugar content. At the end of the season, it's down around 1%. So we have to take that sap from 1% to about 67% sugar to make it into the syrup. And that requires a lot of energy. If you don't use a reverse osmosis machine, that means a lot of fuel, firewood, fuel oil, or whatever you're burning in the evaporator. But with the use of the reverse osmosis machine, you're pumping that sap through a 
membrane that lets the water water molecules will go through and the sugar molecules are a little larger and they won't pass through the membrane. So we can take out half to three quarters of that extra water before we start the boiling process in the evaporator. So so that means essentially it, the syrup doesn't have to boil for as long to get to the correct level. Right, and it does have to boil some to make the syrup because you need the heat to cook the sugars and caramelize them to give the maple syrup its flavor. Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder about that just knowing from, from doing uh, a fair amount of cooking myself that, you know, the amount of time something spends on on the flame or on a heat source that really goes a long way towards developing different flavors um, and, and the complexity of a, a finished product. So you don't find with the syrup that the the reduced kind of boiling time has a significant, you know, impact on the flavor of the syrup. I mean, could you tell side by side, you know, where, you know, one had happened and the other hadn't? Uh, that was a big question that Vermont um, Proctor Research Center had, and they ex- tested it extensively here a year ago and did a lot of taste tests of syrup made with and without reverse osmosis and the end result is there was basically no difference. Interesting. Now, if I wanted to go out and buy a reverse osmosis machine, um, what am I looking at cost-wise? Well, they're all sized depending on the size of your maple operation. They'll start at $5,000 and go to fifty or more thousand dollars for a large operation. Oh, wow. And, you know, it sounds very technical, reverse osmosis, and like kind of hearkening back to some high school science, but uh, the actual filters that you used um, are, are just, it's paper, basically. Is that right? Or what are the, what's the filter made of? Uh, it looks like a tightly wrapped fiberglass. I've never dissected one of the membranes myself, but that's what they look like. And, of course, it, the sap is pumped under high pressure, about three to 400 pounds pressure to get the water molecules to pass through. All right. So after it's gone through the reverse osmosis machine and then it enters um, the boiler, now there is like a kind of another uh, a choice. You know, historically, I think people would would boil sap uh, using wood, using wood from the woodlot that they were managing and... Um, but now, nowadays, is there a trend towards doing, you know, using different kinds of fuel, or uh, is it still primarily like wood is the default? Probably half of the syrup is made on a wood fire still, a, a third to a half. Um, we use fuel oil ourselves and finish it with propane. So there's, there's many different natural gas is an option if you have that rate handy, too. We are actually looking at switching back from the oil fire to a wood pellet burning evaporator to the wood pellets to save the labor cost of handling chunks of wood all day long. Okay. I mean, and I mean, that was one of the things that was, we did when we went up to visit the canters is we, we helped them move some stack of wood. I mean, if you are... If you're boiling syrup over an open flame, you know, 
that the fire is pretty hot and it needs a lot of wood and that means you spend a lot of time kind of chopping and cutting and stacking and, and moving and restacking that wood so there is kind of a significant um labor expense there um i do I, that, that's the main reason people have gone to oil is because of the convenience of the fire and from a cost perspective, I mean, do the two when you when you factor in the cost of the fuel versus kind of the cost of labor to manage it, uh, you know, using wood, does it come out pretty similar, or um, do you have a sense? Fairly, it, it's been fairly similar, but as the price of oil keeps climbing, maybe the price of wood is going to look better. Sure, so you got to weigh those what the cost is between each. Yeah, and well, I think that's also something to remember, um, and I think often it kind of falls out of the conversation that, you know, farming is, is a business, and, you know, there is an economic imperative, and to stay in business, like, you're being faced with all those same decisions of, of any small or medium-sized business owner where you're looking at labor and, and, and you know, cost of goods and, and all that kind of stuff. So, right. Is there any, you know, I know in the barbecue world, like what kind of wood you cook something over, it, it, it's a big thing, you know, it imparts a, a particular flavor to your finished product. But I, I'm assuming there's been some look, some, some, some work done on, on flavor implications of, of different fuel sources. I mean, do you see anything in that area? Um, no, you don't see anything with the flavor getting into the syrup because the firebox under the pans is very contained and you don't get any of that smoke mingling with the syrup. Okay, so it's like the smoke is, is getting released through a different Right, it gets funneled out a chimney in the back of the sugar house. So. Is there any experimenting with that, like a smoked maple syrup? Um, Sounds good. Seems so I've, <laughs> I've heard somebody that does that, but I haven't haven't had any myself. So. Interesting. Maybe an opportunity out there for a oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> new maple syrup business. Um, and then, so as the syrup is kind of making its way through the series of channels within the boiler, it's getting essentially denser and denser as it moves towards the exit point. And how do you know, um, like, when it's done? You watch a thermometer and then double-check it with a hydrometer for the density. But basically, finished syrup is 17 and a half, or seven and a half degrees above the boiling point of water, which the boiling point of water will vary from day to day with the barometric pressure. So, so you watch the thermometer and then just double-check it with a hydrometer at the end. How much will the boiling point of water vary? I mean, what's the range there? Um, a degree or degree and a half sometimes. And, you know, when the boiler is going, you have this, it's the system, it's running, you know, it's, uh, again, it's not like you can just turn it on or, or turn it off, or, or maybe you can with, with a, with a non-wood with, fire. Right, with an oil burning fire, that is one advantage, is if it, something happens, you need to turn it off, you can. With a wood fire, it's, uh lower shutdown time because they can't stop that fire right quick. So in the case of a wood fire, if, if you're going along and, you know, the the person manning the sugar shack, you know, spaces out or, you know, falls asleep because it's three in the morning and they've been collecting sap all day, um, you know, is there is there risk of 
kind of fire or like burnt syrup? I mean, how, uh, what happens and if some like what are some of the things that can go wrong in the boiling process? Yeah, all of those things. First thing that'll happen is the syrup will get cooked too much and turn to 100% sugar and burn in the pans. And then with a hot fire underneath the pan, sometimes the pans would melt away too. Oh, you, the actual pan would disappear. Well, yeah, <laughs> they used to be soldered. Today, the new pans are all welded, so in all the joints, so they wouldn't melt away. But the soldered pans, that would happen. And then you're just what, like shit out of luck until you get new <laughs> <Yeah>. equipment, basically. <laughs> yeah, you need a new evaporator pan before you make any more syrup. Then. Yeah, that, I mean, that was something that really uh, had, you know, I've been up, obviously, to to your operation a couple of times and been in the sugar shack there and, um, you know, gotten a chance to talk with you on a couple different occasions about the process. But it was interesting uh, up at the Cantors because they are, they are boiling syrup over a wood fire and you got a real sense from them of this, you know, the the level of kind of urgency and intensity of staying on top of all these things, you know, managing the fire, making sure the syrup is coming off at the right concentration so it's not, you know, um, over or under. And and it right. seemed like kind of an exciting time to be hanging in the in the sugar shack and managing all that process. It is, yeah. It, you're getting the rewards from all that hard work at tapping and hauling sap in. Uh, and then, as the as you're pulling the syrup um, from the boiler, is there any uh, do you, does it get filtered again at that point, or does it go straight into you know barrels for packing later? We pump it through a filter at the, right as it comes off the evaporator while it's hot. And what are, I mean, the filter. I know there's like a ton of different uh, minerals uh, in syrup. The filter. What what type what type of stuff is the filter picking up? I mean. Well, mostly when you concentrate 40 or 50 gallons of sap into one gallon of syrup, all those minerals that were in the sap start to solidify with the boiling process. So there's nothing in it that would hurt you, but it makes for a cloudy, gritty kind of syrup. So you want to filter out all those chunks of mineral and make it nice and clear and Nice looking and so on. Sure, so it's pretty in the jar. And then... All all our sap is filtered before it goes through the RO machine. So if there was a little piece of dirt or a bug or anything that might have flown into the sap, that gets filtered out before it even gets to the boiler. So it's double protection. So do you still uh, eat, eat or use maple syrup? Of course. <laughs> yeah, what's your favorite application? Um, well, I can't say as I'm a big pancake eater, but once in a while we have pancakes. I love it with a uh, mixed with a little bourbon to marinate my snake steak in for a day before I barbecue it. Oh, that sounds good. I definitely am a big fan of the maple sugar in savoring cooking. It's like one of my favorite secret you know, rib rub right. ingredients. Um, Substitute it for some of the sugar in the recipe. Well, if people want to uh, get a little taste of your syrup, where can they find you guys? We're open every day on our website at maplelandfarms.com. 
Awesome. David, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and taking us through some of the world of a maple syrup producer. I also want to give uh, a quick shout out to some folks over in Michigan. Um, this weekend is the kickoff of the Vermontville Maple Syrup Festival. Kind of funny that the Michigan Maple Syrup Festival is being held in a, the town of Vermontville. Yeah, um, right. But but events there are getting kicked off uh, on Friday. They've got a ton of great stuff going on. Maple syrup exhibits, talent shows, um, tastings, barbecues. You can find out more if you are in the Michigan area uh, at org. And if you can't make it out there, make sure to visit the Maple Land website and get some syrup your way from the 2012 season. And David, hopefully we'll have you on again. Thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. We are taking you out. You have listened to another episode of The Farm Report. Tune in next week at 1 o'clock for a little more on what's happening in the world of farming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.